This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain. Sierra says, save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat up old running shoes. Sierra says, save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery. Well, then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store. Like now, go. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to Radio Astronomy, the podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine. You can subscribe to the print edition of the magazine by visiting skyatnightmagazine.com or to our digital edition by visiting iTunes or Google Play. Welcome to the October episode of Radio Astronomy listeners. I'm news editor Elizabeth Pearson and I'm joined on the podcast today by production editor Neil McKim. Hello. Coming up later in the episode, editor Chris Bramley will be talking to Andrew Griffith, MP and co-chair of the all-party parliamentary group for Dark Skies. And we'll also tell you our top stargazing tip to see in this month's night sky. But for now, we're going to take a look at what we found out while putting together the October edition of BBC Sky at Night magazine. And one of the things that we're really proud to be able to announce um, in this month's issue is the winners of the Insight Investment Astronomy Photographer of the Year Awards 2020. So this is a competition. uh, It's a world-class astrophotography competition that's run by the the National Maritime Museum uh, Royal Observatory Greenwich. um, And we've been a part of it since the very beginning. Um, And every single year, the images from these absolutely blow everybody who sees them away. And I think particularly this year... um, the winning image, uh, I don't know about you, Neil, but for me, I thought it was absolutely stunning. Yeah, yeah, abs- absolutely. The and- Andromeda Galaxy, yeah, absolutely yes. amazing. Yeah, It's this absolute, I, I realise that we're discussing uh, a picture o- over an audio medium, um, but it's this amazing picture of the Milky, uh, of the Andromeda Galaxy, but it's taken in such a way that it 
looks like there's there's a sort of perspective to it and it looks like it's actually really close up and you're looking at it from an angle um and it's got that kind of blurred filter to it and it's really clever how how the person managed to to take this picture yeah apparently um used a mount a 3d printed mount uh to get the effect Mm. which is extraordinary it's that kind of lateral thinking that that gets you ahead in these awards um there's another uh, entry that I particularly liked, which is the, it's called Dark River, and it's the winner of a new prize called the Annie Maunder Prize for Image Innovation. What this is, it's rather than testing your skill at taking pictures, it's your skill at processing pictures that professional astronomers have taken. And what this artist did was she printed out this incredible picture of the Milky Way onto paper and created this sculpture of it and it's it's just always blows my mind about how people can can take a look at the night sky and then come up with these absolutely amazing images yeah because it gives it a really creative slant doesn't it and 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 having a kind of sculptural interpretation just really really gives it some some life as well just gets you thinking Mm. so if you are interested in astrophotography, whether as a, a person who does it or just likes to look at the, the results, um, I suggest you look on either our website, www.skyatnightmagazine.com, or on the Royal Observatory Greenwich. But both of those images that we talked about featured one uh, specific target, and that is galaxies. Um, and Galaxies is something that we talk about in uh, this issue. We have a galaxy tour, which will take you on all the best sights to see in the autumn night sky. Um, but the history of how we we see galaxies and how we understand them is is actually quite interesting. And so I'm going to talk a little bit about that on today's episode. Um, so we first, and by we, I mean humanity, first saw uh, a galaxy since ancient times, we can see one in the night sky, provided you're in a dark sky place. Um, and that galaxy that we can see is our own, the Milky Way, um, which is our view through the disk of our galaxy. Uh, creates this sort of cloud um, or milky stream, where it gets its name, across the sky. And that's our view through our own galaxy. However, we can see another couple of galaxies with the naked eye. Um, the, the only one we can see from the Northern Hemisphere is the Andromeda, sometimes called M31, uh, which is basically just an oval fuzzy blob on the night sky. You need quite a dark sky to be able to see it. Um, and it, it does appear sort of very fuzzy. It's not a very clear object. Slightly more obvious, if you're in the Southern Hemisphere anyway, are the large and small Magellanic clouds. And these aren't big spiral galaxies like our galaxy or Andromeda. Um, They're they're much smaller companion galaxies that are are close by. It was only when people got to have telescopes, though, that we began to see more galaxies in the night sky. Except people didn't realise that was what we were looking at. Um, to, sp- to start with, people thought they were just a strange variety of, of nebula, 
Um, so people called spiral galaxies like Andromeda spiral nebula. And it was only as people began to take closer and closer looks at these that they began to realise something wasn't quite right. It wasn't until 1912 when spectroscopy was much more of a thing. Um, so spectroscopy is when you take the light from a star or a galaxy or a, a nebula and you split it up into its component parts. You basically put it through a prism and there are various signatures in that the, the, the rainbow that you get out of that prism or um, other ways of looking at it uh, that tell you what... Um, chemicals are inside that galaxy, but it can also tell you how fast something is moving away from you. And that's what happened in 1912. An astronomer called Vesto Slipher looked at several galaxies and realised that they were all moving away from us. Uh, fast forward to five years, and then another astronomer called Herbert Curtis in 1917 was looking at Novi in Andromeda. So that's not uh, supernovae when a star reaches the end of its life and explodes. It's it's more to do with the the way that stars evolve. Sometimes they they glow very bright and then dim back down again. Um, and he was looking at these in Andromeda, and he measured dozens and dozens of these, and realised that they were ten magnitudes dimmer on average than the ones you find in the Milky Way. That's a lot, lot dimmer. Um, and he began to think, oh, if that's the case, then Andromeda must be much, much further away than we ever thought it would be. And he began to think that maybe galaxies weren't nebula close by, but maybe there was something very, very big far away. And he started calling these island universes. And the idea was very, very contentious for the next couple of years, um, eventually came to a head in 1920 when Herbert Curtis began, uh, had a debate with another astronomy called Harlow Shapley. Um, you might recognise his names from a famous star catalogue. Um, and they began to debate whether or not galaxies were small and close by or far away and huge. And that was on the 26th of April, 1920, they had this debate. The main argument in favour of these galaxies being small, nearby, um, being a subset of nebulae, was the fact that if Curtis's measurements were right, then the Andromeda galaxy would have to be about a million light years away, um, which was at the time so unconceivably huge that astronomers just couldn't get their heads around it. Uh, it was just way, way, way too big. Um, and of course, now we know that actually Andromeda, astronomically speaking, is just around the corner. It's really quite close by. There's things that are much, you know, billions and billions of light years away. But at the time, it was just, it just people couldn't get their heads around it. Um, and it wasn't until in 1922 when another name that you might recognise, Edwin Hubble of the telescope fame, uh, looked at Cepheid variables in other spiral nebulae, other galaxies. And he, Cepheid variables 
are stars which have a, a very strong relationship between their brightness and how much their brightness varies by. So if you can measure how much their brightness varies by, you know exactly how bright they should be by measuring how bright they are. You can compare those two and work out how far away they are. And using that to make these very, very precise distant measurements of spiral galaxies, they realise that actually, yes, these things are absolutely huge um, and very, very far away. So within the space of about five years, the size of our universe had gone from being just the Milky Way. The Milky Way was everything that existed to the Milky Way suddenly just being one of hundreds, thousands, millions, billions, no one was quite sure back then, of these galaxies floating in space. Which I think must have been a little bit daunting at the time, if you're an astronomer. Um, I don't know about you, but I sometimes have to have a little bit of a sit down. Um, when you have to sort of sit down and, and work out exactly, you know, how far away is a million light years. And then it's like, oh, that's a very big number. I need to go have a coffee now. <laughs> it would be so good if that great debate had been um, on TV, wouldn't it? And also, um, it's funny because um, the, the distance of Andromeda galaxy, um, mm -hmm. I remember years ago on Blue Peter, um, them talking about the distance of it and saying it was a quintillion kilometres. It was in it. I've looked it up and it was 20 quintillion kilometres away. Mm -hmm. I just remember what, what you're saying about it. These, these distances are just so breathtaking. It's as soon as you get into like quadrillion and quintillions, it's just, it's too far away. My brain just can't hold that in my head. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's just, it's just extraordinary. Yeah. There's a, there's a reason why we talk about, you know, light years and billions of light years. <laughs> it's just much easier to process. Um, but but since then, since the the nineteen twenties, and we realised just how big um, the universe was, uh, people have been investigating these galaxies, um, and we now think that there are something like a hundred billion other galaxies within our the universe, um, which is a lot. Yeah, and and in order to investigate them, because some of these are like really, really far away, billions and billions of light years away, um, just looking with optical wavelengths, so the wavelengths you can see with your eye, the light that you can see with your eye, um, just can't see that far. So in the 1950s, uh, microwave observations began to, microwave telescopes began to become available. Um, and these allowed astronomers to track the hydrogen in galaxies. So that's the gas. Hydrogen is one of the main gases that you find throughout the universe. Um, and now people could begin to, to track it throughout galaxies and work out exactly how these things were built, the gas that they were built from, and how that worked. At about the same time, radio astronomy really began to, to come into its heyday. Um, so in fact, 75 years ago, uh, Jodrell Bank was set up. They're, they're currently celebrating their 75th anniversary. Um, and these radio observations revealed that some galaxies that were a bit boring, 
um, maybe had a slight, looked a bit, a bit unusual invisible light. When you looked at them in the radio, they were absolutely stonkingly bright, absolutely huge. Um, and these became known as AGNs or active galactic nuclei. And now we know that these are all of the gas within a, a galaxy gets caught around the black hole, swirls around it really and becomes really, really bright and glows really, really bright. And we know that as an AGN. Similarly, people started looking at galaxies in the infrared in more recent years with infrared telescopes. And that's allowed us to see very, very far away galaxies because infrared can see through dust. It can see through gas. So light that can't normally get out from behind a big gas cloud suddenly becomes visible with these infrared telescopes that we've been developing over the last couple of years. And people have been been going deeper and deeper and deeper to see these galaxies. I think to me, one of the most emotive ways that we've realised how many galaxies are out there was in 1995, the Hubble Space Telescope took what's called the Hubble Deep Field. And that was a picture that where they trained the Hubble telescope on an area of sky that was just two and a half arc minutes across. To put that into perspective, your pinky finger is about one degree across. So your pinky finger is 24 times wider than this area of sky they were looking at. And... The Hubble Space Telescope looked at that spot spot of sky for hours and hours and hours and hours. And when they got the image back, when they processed it, they were expecting to find one or two things. What they found was thousands of galaxies. There was just this incredibly populated, absolute explosion of galaxies. Um, there was 3,000 in that tiny, tiny one degree slice of um two arc minute slice of sky. And they've done even deeper fields looking at areas of sky for even longer since then and found even more galaxies. And it's just really hammers home just, um, well, to be perfectly frank, how insignificant we are in the universe. <laughs> um, but, but, but just, you know, how many of these galaxies are out there. And in fact, there's so many galaxies out there that it's, we, as we've looked at them, at these millions of billions of galaxies, we've, scientists have had to come up with ways to try and organise them, to try and understand them. And that's why they've come up with the various different types of galaxies, which I think Neil is now going to talk to us about. Uh, yes, that's right. Um, well, trying to keep it simple, there's three main types of galaxies there's elliptical, spiral, and irregular. There's other categories as well, uh, which we can also mention. Um, so just to recap, in a nutshell, a galaxy is a gravitationally bound system made up of stars, stellar remnants, interstellar gas, dust, and dark matter. Um, the first main group are elliptical galaxies, which appear smooth and oval-shaped, as we've mentioned. These are mostly made up from older low-mass stars surrounded by globular clusters, typically consisting of tens of millions to over 100 trillion stars. The fact that they are dominated by older stellar populations often gives them a distinctive reddish and yellow colour. 
A massive elliptical galaxy can have a diameter that ranges from 3,000 to 700,000 light years across. It's believed that the merging of smaller galaxies shapes the growth and evolution of these ellipticals. Indeed, our own Milky Way is on course to collide with the Andromeda galaxy, which may end up in a new elliptical galaxy forming. But fortunately, that won't be for another 4.5 billion years. Ellipticals have a black hole at their centre, and perhaps one of the most famous mentions of one in recent times is M87, a galaxy that became famous when the image of its supermassive black hole was released in April 2019. M87 is 55 million light years from Earth. And the next group are spiral galaxies. These are the most common kinds of galaxy, making up around 72% of the galaxies that have been observed. Indeed, our Milky Way is a prime example of one of these. They are twisted collections of stars and gas that often have beautiful shapes and are made up from hot young stars. Most have a bulge in their centre that's thought to contain a supermassive black hole, and the disks orbiting the bulge separate into arms that circle the galaxy. But how these arms form is still a mystery. Scientists believe that spiral galaxies will eventually evolve into ellipticals as they get older. One of the largest spirals is NGC 6872, which is 522,000 light years across from the tips of its arms. There's some wonderful examples for observing. The pinwheel galaxy M101, the Cigar Galaxy and Bode's Galaxy, the latter of which will show up in a pair of binoculars. While we're talking spiral galaxies, there's also the barred spiral galaxy group with a central bar-shaped structure composed of stars. Bars are found in about half of all spiral galaxies but can affect the motions of spiral arms as well. Next are irregular galaxies. There are various anomalies that fit into this group that don't have a particular shape. Collectively, they are thought to make up about a quarter of all known galaxies, and they tend to be smaller. Um, and it's also worth mentioning the oldest galaxy that's ever been discovered to date, which is GNZ11, um, which is the most distant from Earth at a distance of 32 billion light years, meaning it existed just 400 million years after the Big Bang. And so our own galaxy, the, the Milky Way galaxy, um, is what's known as a, we think it's a barred spiral. Um, of course, one of the big problems with trying to observe our own galaxy is the fact that it's, it's a bit like seeing the wood for the trees. You because we're just able to see the stars around us. We can't look down on above and and see what's going on. There are various experiments over the years, uh, various surveys which have looked at as many stars within the Milky Way that they can possibly get, um, tried to work out not just where they are on the night sky, but how far away they are and build up this, this 3D picture of what the the galaxy is like uh, and this is has come up with the fact that we we think the milky way has two big spiral arms we are on the orion arm um we're pretty far out actually uh, little planet earth is quite on the outer edges of the the galaxy uh 
Um, but we think there also might be a, a short bar in the middle of the galaxy. That's one of the big questions of people who are trying to map out the Milky Way. Do we have a bar or not? One of the most recent missions that's trying to, to answer that question is the Gaia mission, which is a spacecraft that is up in the sky at the moment, and it is measuring over a billion stars. Um, in fact, I think it's got up to, to, to two billion, constantly, constantly measuring them to, to work out their positions and where they are. And hopefully that will be able to build this really intricate picture of what our galaxy looks like and, and help us build a map from the inside out. And it's, it's always also worth mentioning the um, black hole, Sagittarius A, um, apparently has a mass of 4 million times greater than the sun. Yes. So Sagittarius A uh, is, is the name that we give to the black hole that lies, the supermassive black hole, I should say, that lies at the heart of the Milky Way. And which I believe the Event Horizon Telescope, which you mentioned earlier, um, they attempted to take a picture of the shadow of our own black hole. So far, they haven't released any pictures, so that might not have been as successful as it was for M87. Um, but maybe one day soon, we should be able to get a picture of our own black hole. Oh, that'd be amazing. <laughs> if, however, you want to get a look of some galaxies beyond our own for yourself, then you can take a look at the October issue where we have an entire autumn galaxy tour. However, in order to see most of those galaxies, you'll need to get away from the cities and away from sources of light pollution. For more on that now, I pass you over to our editor, Chris Bramley. The topic of light pollution and the battle to protect dark skies is one that many listeners and amateur astronomers will be all too familiar with. Since the start of the year, there has been a new group of entrants to the field in the shape of MPs and lawmakers, who have formed the All-Party Parliamentary Group for Dark Skies. They currently have a public consultation open for submissions, and I spoke to Andrew Griffith, MP, about it. I started off by asking him about his role as co-chair of the group. Yes, I am. Yeah, um, the, uh, I'm very uh, lucky to found that with the Astronomer Royal, Lord Merlin Rees. Um, and uh, we actually tapped into a lot more interest in both both Houses of Parliament than I had ever realised. So we are already one of the larger all-party parliamentary groups. We've got representation from all political parties in the UK. Mm -hmm. um, and we are active. We've had a couple of meetings. And as you probably know, we're now in the middle of a consultation with any interested group uh, in what we can be doing as parliamentarians uh, from a legislative perspective to try and protect or even improve people's ability to see a dark sky at night. Yes, that's right. This, um, your consultation is open for, for submissions until the 27th of September. Um, what, what's it asking for and what do you hope that the results will enable? Well, we, 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 I think we all understand the problem. 
uh, more and more uh, children are growing up without being able to connect with their universe uh, by seeing things like the Milky Way at night. We saw in the recent British Astronomical Association survey that 61% of people now live in areas with severe light pollution. That means they can see fewer than 10 stars in the night sky. So that's the problem that we are trying to solve. And what we're looking for in the consultation, it's a call for ideas. Any, any ideas, there's no, no good or bad ideas, um, but things that we could do that would help enshrine that. That could be around lighting standards. It could be about how we build and construct new buildings as a country. Uh, it could be the role of dark skies within the planning process, um, other government statutory processes. Uh, or it could be the way in which we use existing legislation. There is some, not a lot, uh, but it could be the way in which we use and enforce existing legislation on things like light nuisance uh, and any other ideas. It's a, uh, a time of technology moving quite fast uh, and there may be some other technological things that we can do to protect our night skies. Uh, but, but all of this at the end of the day is about that protection of dark skies. And... Um... So your your um, your group, your all party all party parliamentary group, um, does have there been ideas within that already for the kind of effective actions that might might come out of this? Yeah, there have been. It's. Um... I won't say it's premature to, um, to 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 say what they would be. I mean, there are things like putting the Commission for Dark Skies on a statutory footing. Uh, so it's consulted as part of every big planning process. That might be one. Um, another could be to beef up the language on dark skies in the national planning policy framework. That's a document uh, that planners across the country use uh, when they're looking at any form of development. Uh, a third could be promoting, whether in law or just promoting and using our convening power in Parliament, to create new standards um, so that people people who want to do the right thing, and many people do want to do the right thing, um, have an easy place to go to look at whether their development or whether their existing company um, is dark sky compliant or dark sky friendly. So, so those are three areas that we're, we're kicking around. Um, but as I say, there's no there's no bad ideas, however little and sm uh, little or large. Um, we're, we're the purpose of this consultation is to gather as many ideas in an area that perhaps I think hasn't had enough attention uh, from legislators uh, in previous times. Um, and, and just just for those perhaps unfamiliar with APPGs um, or party parliamentary groups, um, could you perhaps just briefly describe their their place within the kind of government framework? Yeah, there, um, there are lots of them. Uh, they tend to focus on particular areas of interest. So uh, they're not party political in any way. Uh, they draw their membership, you know, a bit like a society at a school or college. Uh, they draw their membership across the political spectrum. Uh, the main qualification for people to be involved or a member is just an interest in that topic. And the ones that are most effective have a program of work that involves perhaps meetings with ministers uh, to hold them to account or to prosecute their case, uh, to come up with and draft and support new legislation, whether that's government legislation or things that private members of parliament themselves can put forward. 
uh, and they provide a ready base of support for that. Uh, and finally, they're just a, uh, a convening group. You know, we invite speakers to Parliament um, to keep us informed as parliamentarians. So even on aspects of our work that aren't directly related to this topic, we understand some of the issues, we understand emerging technologies, and we can look for every opportunity to promote the cause of dark skies. One of the best things about this campaign, if you like, is this isn't necessarily about government spending money. There's always a lot of, you know, competition. There's a lot of contention for demands when it comes to government spending money. If anything, this could even save money because at the moment, as we probably know, most of your listeners will know, we're over lighting the dark skies. We're, we're burning carbon to power electricity and other light sources. Uh, and a lot of that is escaping and causing light pollution. So actually, we're pretty rare in the sense that this could be an all-party parliamentary group that's actually saying we could save the government money if we adopted new standards in this space. And, and um, I mean, with the cu- current situation with, um, with light pollution, uh, as regards those who, uh, who want to protect dark skies, how does, how does planning, current planning legislation, the way it works at the moment, how does it make it challenge, a cha- challenging for, for, for people to protect dark skies, organisations and developments and things like that? Well, there's, there's very little um, provision in there. So if you are planning a development, whether large or small, there are bodies like um, the, the local water authorities, for example, um, or the county council when it comes to planning for schools, Um, that are automatically consulted. Um, There's an ecological survey. You know, again, listeners, whether they've tried to extend their own garage or come across development will know that one of the things that is protected in law uh, and a lot of time and energy now is spent on is protecting ecology. And that's good. But there's nothing analogous to dark skies. There's no survey standard that has to be submitted as part of the planning process. And there's no easy place to find a set of guidelines that says if I'm planning a small out of town industrial estate and we know that they tend to be horribly overlit, sometimes for good reason, but often not. They're just it's just an unthinking um, part of the design. There's no easy place to go that says if I want to be dark sky friendly, this is the one stop shop. That, that I could find. So that's that's just an example. So there are lots of opportunities to bake into that planning process the chance, which I think most people would take, to be dark sky friendly. Uh, and that's just one example. There may be others in terms of we do, as you know, have some dark sky reserves. Many of the national parks in the United Kingdom are dark sky reserves. Um, and there may be some additional support that we can give those emerging, if you like, because there's more every day, um, emerging dark sky um, reserves or or other protected areas. Now, I I, I think, I believe, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think your your constituency, um, um, Arundel and South Downs, um, includes part of one of those dark sky reserves, the um, South Downs International um, Dark Sky Reserve. That's that's exactly right. I mean, it's quite remarkable that that area of dark skies exists relatively relatively close to the edge of London. Um, 
Why do you think it's why do you think it's important to to protect that site? Well, for, for two reasons. I mean, first of all, I think it really is important um, that people can connect with the universe that we're part of. Um, it's an awe-inspiring site. Um, it allows people to connect with the place they're in, uh, as well as our past. This is the first generation of human history, really, where the majority of human beings on Earth have not been able to see a clear, dark sky at night. Um, and so I think there's, an, there's a very important part of ourselves um, as human beings being able to make that connection with the universe. And of course, as part of that, we're making a connection with the natural world and our environment, something that, that's obviously of great and uh, growing importance. Um, so I think that's really, really important. Um, we talk a lot as um, politicians and, and governments of all flavors about the challenge of getting young people interested in STEM subjects, science and technology. Uh, and again, many people who operate in those fields today have either had an interest in astronomy in the past or have been inspired by that connection of place in the universe. So I think there's a very positive side of why we should be fighting to protect our dark skies. And then on the flip side, exactly as you said, Chris, um, we in the South Downs National Park in my constituency are by far the closest to London. Um, and so we, we constantly have to fight. We can't take for granted that we will continue to have access to the dark sky. It's something that we have to fight for. And in my view, it's something that's very worthwhile fighting for. But if you like, I guess one of my interests, as apart from my own uh, personal um, having been inspired in the past by um, uh, being able to see the dark sky at night, is that we are a, an environment that's on the front line of this battle, if you like. That's where the battle is being fought out. Um, and then finally, of course, the good news is it's very easy to do things about this, whether it's turning off um, street lighting between midnight and 4 a.m., uh, whether it's just designing lights to point downwards rather than upwards, uh, whether it's replacing old-fashioned um, sodium technology with well-designed LEDs, um, there are lots of very easy ways in which we can improve this. So unlike some really big and tractable problems, I actually think this is one that's relatively accessible and we can do something about. Yes. Um, so on that point of, of lighting design, um, what's your view of lighting design currently? Is, in, is enough being done to um, promote dark sky friendly lighting design, both in terms of kind of the kind of street lighting and and um, lighting that big developments might put up, and for the kind of home home improvement type market as well. Um, it strikes me that, that there isn't currently a kind of um, a, a kind of you know a, a kite mark type system in place for lighting design. Um, the, things like ideas like that that would be would be useful in your consultation presumably that is a that is a brilliant idea you see um and and most most aware consumers now as a result of things like the um sustainable forestry commission you know wouldn't dream of going out and buying a picnic table that was made of precious rainforest woods um, and yet if you go into a local hardware store and you're buying lights for your garden, there is no equivalent kite mark. Um, and even if you wanted to be a smart consumer about dark skies, it would be very hard to identify which ones were and which ones aren't. 
So the information is all out there. The technology is is there if you go looking hard enough for it. Um, but I think there is definitely more to do in terms of equipping consumers to make smart choices. And, and the same would also be true of developers. Um, I think developers, when I've spoken to them, are very receptive to this issue, but it's not something that automatically is front of mind. Um, and it would be good to have an, a prompt within the planning process that says, you know, does your development, whether one house or many, um, does it does it comply with, you know, the very best standards for dark sky friendly lighting? Uh, again, it's out there. Um, sometimes it's a little bit more expensive, but really that's at the margin. Um, and I believe most people want to do the right thing once you can make them aware of it. So there's a bit about awareness and potentially a bit about creating more readily accessible standards. Yes. Um, on this podcast on radio astronomy, we're we're approaching this from an observational stargazing night skies point of view. But this issue of light pollution doesn't just impact astronomers, does it? Uh, I mean, there are other areas that it impacts too. Are you? Is the consultation seeking um, seeking to hear from other other groups in in other areas, kind of healthcare, um, nature, nature conservation? Yeah, the, look, you make a very good point, and the consultation seeks the agenda for dark skies um, has all of those aspects covered. People who have disturbed sleep. Um, the ecological environment, uh, which can be very profound to a lot of native species um, and has been scientifically proven uh, to put them under stress. And, and a lot of them are already in a situation, something like 40% of our native species are to some degree rare or endangered and in a stress situation. Um, so our agenda encompasses all of that. I think the good news is a lot of the remedies solve all three problems in one go. Um, and we shall certainly um, hope, hopefully get as many submissions from those communities as we do from those who are uh, perhaps more interested from the astronomical side of things. Great. And, and um, just, to re just to remind us again, Andrew, um, if people wish to take part in, the, um, in your consultation, um, how they go about doing that? Um, I think probably the best thing is to visit our website, which is www.appgdarkskies.co.uk. Um, that's APPPG. So it's a bit of a mouthful, but it stands for All Party Parliamentary Group. So that's the way to remember it. APPGDarkSkies, all one word, .co.uk. Um, and we're very happy. It doesn't have to be a very long submission. It's not formal. It will come straight to myself and my colleagues. Um, and then we will look at those and uh, see if we can take the best ideas forward. Best sometimes meaning the most actionable ideas um, or the cleverest ideas uh, and try over the next year or so to uh, get them perhaps debated in Parliament if we can or get colleagues to work and see if we can um, propose and advocate for any laws or government systems to be changed. Brilliant. Um, well, Andrew Griffith, MP, thank you very much for um, taking the time to speak to us today. Well, very much. Thank you for having me and, um, and best wishes uh, to all of your listeners. Uh, and perhaps I'll come back in the future and let you know how we've got on. That was Andrew Griffith. To find out more about what you could possibly see from a dark sky site, 
Be sure to pick up the October issue of BBC Sky at Night magazine, where we give you all of the best dark sky sights to see this month. On the 13th of October, Mars will make its closest approach to Earth, an event known as Opposition. For the months running up to and after this time, the red planet will be obviously visible to the naked eye, making it a great spot for beginner astronomers. The planet rises in the east relatively early in the evening, but will be at its highest later at around 2am, when it will be towards the south in the constellation of Pisces. The planet should be fairly obvious due to its brightness, but the real giveaway is Mars's pale red to pink colour. So that's it from us this month. If you want a more detailed guide to observing Mars or opposition, you can pick up the October issue of BBC Sky at Night magazine, where we also investigate why some comets fail to live up to expectations, reveal the InSight Investment Astronomy Photographer of the Year winners 2020, and speak to one of the 2019 winners about how they created their award-worthy Aurora shot. And that's not forgetting our regular sections that will help you unlock the wonders of the night sky, find the right equipment to observe it with, and discover the best things to see after dark this month. From all of us here at BBC Sky at Night magazine, goodbye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Radio Astronomy podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine, which was produced in our Bristol studio by Jack Bateman and Ben Hewitt. For more of our podcasts, visit our website at skyatnightmagazine.com or head to iTunes, Acast or Spotify. Spotify.